Everyone wants to get better at sales, right? But once you've had some success, could you explain why? Could you repeat that and train others to mimic your success? Cirrus Insight co-founder Brandon Bruce has grown his sales integration software company into a $12 million business by focusing on the process and creating systems that show where growth comes from and how to replicate it. But there's a surprising benefit to this. It allows you to predict potential customers' needs, which you can use to lead them down your sales path and get them invested in your product or service before you ever make the pitch. Then, when you do, you're the obvious choice and your competition doesn't stand a chance. We talk about that and a whole lot more of the challenges startups face early on when trying to figure out how to create a sales system for their company. Please welcome Brandon Bruce. by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. Hey, Brandon, thanks so much for coming on the show. So you are the co-founder of Cirrus Insights, which from what I can tell is an app integration for Salesforce that basically lets salespeople update their prospect database and follow-up information and calendar and all this stuff directly from their inbox as opposed to having to copy and paste or go over to Salesforce and plop all that stuff in. And it lets them get their reminders, their alerts, and schedule stuff. Uh, is there anything you'd add to that? No, I think that's a great encapsulation. When, when we get user reviews, they really revolve around, hey, this tool saved me a lot of time, and especially time that I was spending doing manual data entry and things that salespeople tend not to like to do. I don't think anybody up. likes to do that. No, that's true. <laughs> salespeople are just like all of us, right? right. Um, and, and it frees up more time to have actual conversations. That's, uh, you know, bottom line, uh, I'm a salesperson. We have a sales team. We've spent a lot of time with sales teams around the country, around the world. Uh, folks like to have conversations. They like to meet people. Salespeople tend to be pretty outgoing. So, you know, the hope for our application is that it opens up a lot more time to have real conversations. Right. And it's funny because one of the slogans on your website says manage sales without leaving your inbox, which sounds like pure hell to me because I hate being in my inbox. I love nothing more than to not check email for a day or two at a time when I can. But I, I, the efficiency side of it is definitely very appealing for sure. Cause that's like when we're scheduling for trade shows, it's all this back and forth. Um, it's, it kind of sucks. Yeah. I mean, I think what's been interesting is sitting in a lot of sales floors and you look around and you say, okay, what, what are people using, uh, on their laptops, on their desktops? And so you look at the monitors and they're almost always in their inbox or their calendar because that's where customers are writing in and that's where the scheduling happens. So they're either in outlook an outlook calendar or they are in Gmail and Google calendar. And so we were like, well, the data is not flowing into Salesforce where you can run reports and kind of learn more about your process, what's working, what's not working. And so we decided to literally, uh, like you described, bring Salesforce into the inbox. So it sits in a little side panel to the right of Outlook, to the right of Gmail. And that way everything's on one screen. So we're really trying to avoid uh, context switching, if you will, um, which is just becomes distracting and it burns a lot of time. I don't want to turn this into a 
commercial for any program or Salesforce or anything, but I, I will say I, looking at the calendar integration where you can pop times into an email and let somebody pick one and it automatically populates your calendar and their calendar is pretty awesome and people should go check that out and i'll put a link in the show notes for that so it's, it's definitely my my favorite feature we were introduced to it because i received an email that said hey choose one of these times so i clicked one to book time with a vendor and i thought man that's a really slick process it, it got them the meeting they wanted it was respectful of my time uh so we reached out to that developer and actually acquired that company three years ago nice. and integrated it into cirrus insight and uh yeah for for people that, are, that schedule meetings that live through their calendar uh, it's a great tool because it avoids the back and forth of you know 20 emails to schedule a meeting and simplifies it down to one transaction, which yeah. is pretty slick. That's awesome. Okay, so from what I've read, either in articles you've written about the sales process or descriptions of your company, Cirrus Insights, it seems like you really advocate for a more detail-oriented, measured approach to sales that focuses more on getting a real valuable result at the end of that funnel as opposed to just any result. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but I thought it'd be fun to start first and hear how you went from this tiny little town of 800 people where you grew up to starting a company that's listed as one of Inc. Magazine's fastest growing companies. It's one of those things I think growing up, I was always pretty fascinated by the people where I couldn't really figure out what they did for a living. It, where it was like, well, don't, you know, where, where's your office? Where do you go for work? And uh, you know, I remember some of my friends' parents did, you know, pretty interesting, innovative things where like one of them was, uh, extracting silver from old film. Right. And then they would bundle all the silver together and, and, and sell it as a commodity. And I was like, that's a really interesting idea. One that I never would have thought of, uh, until I heard of it. And I think, uh, both of my parents, my dad worked in the defense industry and then with pharma and my mom uh, was a journalist and also ran the schools that I went to growing up. Um, they were both very entrepreneurial in nature. They always had projects going. They was working on something, so growing up that way, once we got into the mid and late 90s and all these books and articles and fascinating stories came out about tech and how software was transforming the world, I just found those stories to be captivating. And I tried to kind of figure out a way over time to get myself involved in that. So I went to work uh, for a bandwidth company uh, running basically T1 and T3 lines in California in the late 90s, which was an awesome experience and also one that was really interesting because the legislation really changed the game. Uh, we were basically by law a reseller of bandwidth. And then the California legislature said, well, now the telcos can sell direct. Uh, so that was the end of that. Um, that there was, there was a, you know, no, no real way to recover from that as far as the business model was concerned. But it was a great experience in, in kind of getting really close with customers that were using the internet to advance their business models. So yeah, fast forward to about seven years ago, my best friend from college, Ryan Huff, uh, called me up and was uh, he had developed a tremendous amount of expertise on the Salesforce platform and said, hey, I've seen a gap in the market, right? Which is what you're always looking for, some sort of inefficiency, some sort of pain. And a lot of people were posting online, hey, we're going to the cloud, we're going to Gmail, and we're also using you know, Salesforce, the original kind of cloud software for customer relationship management. And the two do not talk to each other, and we need them to talk to each other. We have valuable customer data in both cloud systems, and we need the data to flow back and forth. So Ryan started coding Cirrus Insight at that point and kind of called me to figure out, is there a market for this? Like, I think it'll be valuable. I think we'll use it. Are there other people out there that would also use it with us? So, so my job really, as I've described to my kids who are six and eight, so they've really grown up with the company. Um, my job is talk on the phone 
Uh, my job is to spend time with our partners, with our customers, really learning about their process, how they work, and how we can build software to align uh, with what they're trying to achieve for their sales teams. Yeah, it sounds like this maybe is more a question for your business partner that's building it out. But like, I'm kind of curious, what's the first step in building out an app on top of somebody else's program? And in this case, too, like you've got the email client, whether it's Outlook or Gmail, and then you've got Salesforce on the other side. Yeah, I mean, I think similar to to music, it's it's very iterative. I mean, it's pretty rare for someone in music to come up with something where it's like, wow, we've never heard anything like that. Usually there's some sort of precursor, even if we go back to classical music, there's some chords and so forth that are the building blocks. So similarly for us, we, we looked for inspiration. So Ryan had seen an application that, that probably some listeners are familiar with and some may still use called Reportive. Uh, that was a Chrome extension that basically brought LinkedIn into the inbox. So as soon as you open an email, you can see someone's LinkedIn profile and connect with them and send them a message and kind of keep track of them in the side panel. And we thought, this is awesome. And we were users of that app. And then we thought, yeah, but what about the people that you already have a relationship with or that you're actively tracking in your sales pipeline or as customers? That data isn't necessarily in LinkedIn. You have it yourself in your own uh, Salesforce org, in your CRM. So we want to see that information and be able to update it. And some of that's very customized, right? Every company builds out their own CRM to reflect how they do business, their own sales cycle, their own custom fields, their own custom objects. And we thought if we can bring that in, then that reflects their unique business proposition. And so that was the angle. It was kind of building on, uh, honestly, kind of the genius idea that the folks at Report have had in partnership with LinkedIn and thinking, okay, what if we didn't do it for LinkedIn? What if we did it for Salesforce instead? And that was the genesis from, a, from an architecture standpoint of what to do. And then it was a matter of getting it out to people and getting their feedback, which the lion's share of the feedback was, this is pretty cool. Here's 100 things that you should add to it uh, to make it even better. So we had like nine months or 12 months of roadmap pretty well established from our 1,000 beta users back in the fall uh, of 2011, seven years ago. Um, but thankfully also some of the feedback was this is saving us time already. Uh, we're getting value out of a CRM that otherwise we weren't really using before. So, so we'd be willing to pay for this. And in fact, someone found the website early before they were supposed to, uh, and put in a subscription and we thought this is, this is tremendous. And we called them to say, well, we're, we're willing to refund it because we haven't started charging people yet. And I said, well, we'll be your first customer. And that was a good, you know, shot of momentum that, basically caused us to make, I I think, our best decision, which was simply to launch. Because we had thought about delaying three months or six months so that we could build in all this cool stuff that people were asking us for. Uh, But instead of waiting, we just decided to get out the gate and launch. And that was super important because it helped us get our first 500 customers and it helped get us out first in market. So that two, three months later, our first competitor launched and then another competitor maybe three months after that. But having that uh, beachhead, if you will, out in the market helped us to establish our brand. Nice. So when you were getting all these requests and these hundreds of ideas and stuff, how did you filter through and pick, figure out what you were going to put on the roadmap first? Was it just whatever you were getting the most demand for or just the stuff that you thought was coolest or something else? Yeah, I think uh, number one by volume. So if we if we had, you know, five people, 10 people, 50 people all asking for the same thing is sort of, uh, we went with a crowdsourcing approach kind of law of numbers with this many people want it, it must be important. Um, but then also a single request can speak for a lot of volume. So it may just be one request, but it's coming from the largest prospect. 
who's saying this is the most important thing in the world for us. And if we could, you know, have a conversation with them and verify that that was true, uh, then we would, then we would build that. I will say we, we built some of the stuff that we thought would be cool and would be useful based on our own experience and use cases. Uh, some of those things have worked out really well, but if we had to choose, most of the good ideas have come from the customers, right? It's customer driven. It's, it's, it's their demand. So I think that, Hey, we're going to surprise the market by coming up with something super special, uh, and then launch it. And they'll be so pleased, uh, cause it's been a big secret, uh, for us hasn't been uh, the right recipe. The, the better recipe has been, uh, Hey, one customer asked for this. Let's go ask the rest of the customers, see if we can get a consensus and then release that. And so they're simply saying, Oh good. I asked you for something. You said you would do it. You delivered on your brand promise. And so we're going to buy it or we're going to keep buying it from you. And that, that simple process has actually been the best for us. Nice. So you mentioned that in your prior experience with the telcos and, and laying the the fiber lines to deliver internet everywhere. And then all of a sudden the regulations change. I feel like that's a very similar situation to what could happen now, right? Like you've built your app on top of other people's systems, Salesforce, Gmail, Outlook. What happens if they create their own or they just say, you know what, we're not going to let you guys have access anymore. Yeah. Huge, huge risk. Right. And one that we've lived with, uh, since the beginning, people, we, we knew about it and people would ask us, well, what if, Salesforce just comes out with this similar functionality or what if one of the huge, you know, consulting firms or ISVs comes out with this. And uh, several years ago, Salesforce did make an acquisition that included an extension that would show up inside Gmail and show up inside Outlook. And so, yeah, it's a very complex relationship. And, and you hear about these the same relationships with folks that build apps on the Apple Store uh, on iTunes and folks that build on Google's Play Store, where on the one hand, we're partners. Uh, you know, we're, we're customers of each other in, in many cases with a lot of these technology companies, but we also have to be aware that there's competition uh, involved. So kind of a, cla- a classic co-opetition, uh, if you will, situation. So for us, the key is, the key has been, because we've branched out and we've added a lot to the platform, which I think has been very valuable, but it's also been important over the last couple of years to really hone in and say, this is the stuff that we've been arguably the best at since the beginning. Uh, and credit to Ryan and, and, and our engineering team for building this stuff the way they've built it. Uh, this is stuff that we're the best at. That's what we still need to focus on because that's what the customers chose us for originally and what they keep choosing us for. So rather than get uh, potentially distracted by you know shiny objects and let's go build that or let's pivot away, we sort of expanded the platform but at the same time consistently pivoted back to the fact that we're the best at deep integration with Salesforce. Uh, better, we would argue, than, than Salesforce itself because they have to make an app that appeals to a broad audience across kind of their entire customer base. But we have to build something that has the deepest possible integration that really appeals to you know, customers that care a lot about workflow. So we're talking about big enterprise customers that have built things a very specific way and, and we integrate with that. And also kind of the broad swath of customers that are really in the weeds. Uh, they really want things to work just so. And that's how Serious Insight has been built. It seems like there's kind of two opportunities there, though. You know, should things go south with the relationship, is you mentioned somebody else got acquired. I'm sure you guys must be an acquisition target at some level for some of these companies because it works so well and you have a large user base that's paying. Um, or, like, you could probably just build out the rest of the system, right? Like you already have the integration, just add that 
sales management feature to it and keep the customers you have? Is that something that's like kind of a plan B or? Yeah, I think, I think both are very, very valid approaches and both are ones that we've spent substantial time on. So on the one hand, I think there's a ton of uh, sales enablement tools on the market. Uh, that makes sense because everyone does sales and that industry is not going to go away anytime soon. Um, it's been around since forever and will be around for forever. That said, with that many tools in the marketplace, there'll be at some level some app fatigue, I suspect, at some point in the future. And so it will make sense for applications to join together. So I would expect there to be some sort of market consolidation in the future where you're developing out these larger platforms, which is something over the past several years, we've made a concerted effort to acquire some other companies as well as build internally some of the core features that would create a sales enablement platform. So you really need, you know, buy Gmail or Outlook, Office 365, buy Salesforce, and then buy the key tool that sits in between them. And that's what we've, uh, that's our goal is to be that, that glue that holds the big cloud platforms together. Um, and yeah, to your point, meanwhile, it could also make sense to develop our own, you know, light CRM, if you will. I don't think we or anybody else is going to recreate you know, the big behemoth CRMs of the Salesforce, SAP, Dynamics, et cetera, of the market. But there does seem to be a lot of demand for tools that are flexible, but at the same time simplified uh, so that sales teams don't get lost in process, but they can focus on the key deliverables of their business and their industry. Um, so that could be an opportunity as well as expanding to other CRMs. Our expertise historically has been on one platform, Salesforce, but we could expand that to serve folks that are using any number of CRMs, including home-baked ones. Um, so I think there's a lot of integration opportunity. Nice. Okay, so let's move on to your strategy for sales. And this is where, when I was researching you prior to this interview, I found most of the things that you've written and talked about are about the sales process. And my quick takeaway was that you kind of encourage people to focus on the right things, which is like how to provide the most value to potential customers rather than what you call vanity metrics, like how many leads you generated, how quickly you closed them, how many calls and emails you did. Um, kind of like a quality over quantity, but to me it sounds like you're, it's just really about paying attention to the right things. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we spend a tremendous amount of time, maybe even sometimes an inordinate amount of time, looking at all the materials that we receive. Right. So we're, we're the customer in a lot of situations. So we receive a lot of email, a lot of phone calls and voicemail, sometimes even things in the postal mail. Uh, we attend a lot of conferences where we're pitching, but we're also being pitched to. And so we're constantly trying to hone down on the best of. So when I receive an email that I actually open, I'm like, man, what caused me to open that? Why was the subject line so good? And if I reply, then why did I reply to that? What was the hook? What, what got me? What, what did they say that was so relevant? to me or my experience or my business that I replied. And then we'll circulate that team wide be like, check out this email. This is a winner. Like whoever sent this and whatever company they're working for, they did their, they did their homework. Uh, so we need to do that. So a, a lot of it is, is borrowing. And it's a, that's a continuous experience. Cause we found now that we've been in business for a few years, you know, when we started, we used to find a few things and be like, cool. Uh, nine out of 10 things didn't work. We found one thing that worked. So we're going to double down and triple down on that and just do that. But of course, everyone would eventually figure out that that worked and then everyone would start doing it and then it stops working so well anymore. And then you got to find the next thing. Um, so we do try to pay attention to what's going on. And, and to your point, it was, the, it was a customer uh, that we serve that runs a, a nationwide network of gyms. And so we were really promoting the benefits of our software. Like, look, you can see when people open the emails 
and therefore which emails are the most effective, which ones get opened, at what time you send them, how you send them out, what subject lines you use, and so forth. And they were like, yeah, well that, that's great. And we've looked at every vendor in the marketplace, including you all, and we like you all because the depth of your Salesforce integration. But let's remember, we sell gym memberships. In other words, I can't go into a board meeting and say, hey, everyone's opening our email, but sales are down. Um, that's not going to play well. So he said, let's, let's make sure we orient everything in the conversation around selling more gym memberships. We always have to connect it up to that end goal. And it can't be about just scheduling more meetings. It has to be scheduling more quality meetings in service of selling more gym memberships, opening more emails in service of selling more gym memberships. And so we, we sort of use that one example of gym memberships across the board so that every customer we engage with, we're like, what's their gym membership? Uh, what is it, whether they're selling a fighter jet and the sales cycle is 15 or 20 years, or you know, they're selling a widget and the sales cycle is 24 hours, we sort of want to know what their end goal is and therefore position our application to add value in that process. Yeah, you've called it uh, focusing on the prize and not the practice. Because I could see getting buried in the emails and just feeling like you're, you know, you're busy all day, but you're not really doing anything, right? Like you could reply to 50 million emails. All of us could because we get that many. But it's kind of like focusing on the good ones. And then when you send them out and you're contacting people is paying attention to those little things. Again, it's like some people just fire off hundreds, thousands of emails. And then, you know, if something comes in, great. Whereas you could take a little more time and craft maybe a hundred really good ones and probably have a much higher percentage of success on those. Yeah, a friend of mine uh, shared the phrase and I had not heard it. Maybe everyone else has, but I hadn't uh, the other day in a meeting and said, uh, all hat and no cattle. And I was like, what? Like, what are we talking about? And I came from the West and I've been to dude ranches as a kid and rode horses and all that stuff. And I was like, all hat, no cattle. What the heck are you talking about? But of course, it's referring to the, you know, the, the cowboy and name only, right? The person that shows up and the wranglers and the big hat, but that really doesn't know what they're doing uh, versus the one that's running a whole herd of cattle uh, that actually has responsibility. And I think that's even more possible now because of all the tools. You can kind of effectively send out lots of messaging uh, and you can do things at a really high rate with, you know, power email tools, power dialers, et cetera. Um, but that only means th th those are value agnostic. In other words, if you're doing the wrong thing, you're just doing the wrong thing faster and more. Uh, if you're doing the right thing, they're brilliant tools. But yeah, you do want to be the one with the cattle. You want to be the one at the end of the quarter that's saying like, yeah, so I, I really focused on the stuff that matter. I didn't send as many emails as everybody else. I didn't make as many phone calls, but, I do, I, but I've got the highest sales number uh, versus other folks are saying, yeah, but my emails were opened at a higher rate. So what? Right? It, it didn't matter. There was some other weak link in your process. And um, that, I think, is interesting. That gets into kind of there's the science of it where you can look at the numbers and the, and the graphs and follow pipeline and create a forecast. And that's great. But there's also the, the art of it, which is to say, OK, cool part of the process worked and then part of it broke down because you weren't bringing the right energy, the right enthusiasm, some of the intangible homework, the stuff that at least today AI can't do. Uh, humans have to do this. Humans have to book a flight and go show up at the customer's office and shake hands to make that physical connection and say, we can trust each other and we're in the game together versus the, hey, let's just do this transaction by email, never really get to know each other. And I may or may not exist as a human being. This may be a bot that's trying to sell to you. Mm -hmm. um, I think those things still don't quite work. Right. 
Well, it's like just building that relationship, which you, you you said you guys have done over the years with the clients who, when they request a feature and you deliver on that, the, you know, like the likelihood of them switching to one of your competitors is probably way slimmer after that than beforehand. If you had just said, uh, yeah, we'll take it into consideration. And then six months later, still nothing's happened. Right. Yeah. We've got a poster up on the wall in the office, right? It just says three, <laughs> three big rules show up on time, say please. And thank you and do what you say you're going to do. And uh, honestly, if we do that internally, then we have a happy team. And if we do that for our customers, uh, you know, what more can we, what more can they want or what more can we expect from ourselves? Uh, that, that said, we and every company are still susceptible to, you know, major competitive threats, to macroeconomic change, to shifts in market and, and big, you know, technology shifts. Um, but if, if we deliver on what we say we're going to do, then like you say, people are going to respect that. And say, well, I, I asked for it. And, and, and all the psychology indicates that, you know, people don't want to um, refute themselves. We hate the sense that we've said something and then we're wrong. All of us really don't like that psychologically. That's why we have such a hard time, you know, asking for directions or admitting that we were wrong back when. We'll sort of hedge around it like, well, I was sort of wrong, but mostly right. Um, and so if people have asked for something, they're basically putting themselves out there and saying, this is what I want. And if you deliver it, They'll usually acknowledge, yeah, that's what I wanted. That's, that's what I asked for. So it's great. Yeah, nice. So, so I want to tie in just so people can kind of think of this in, in an even bigger picture. One of my more recent guests was Matthew Pollard, who was also talking on the subject of sales. And his thing was selling with stories, you know, because it it conveys what you want to sell them or or how you can benefit them in a way that it's not really a sales pitch. It's just like, Hey, you know, like this is what I did for somebody that has a company kind of like yours. Here's how it benefited them. You know, it'd probably work for you too. And it ends up, the, the customer then ends up figuring out in their own head that, oh yeah, this is what I need. And it's the same thing. It's it's like the extension of building that relationship, right? Is you're building a relationship, you're doing it right, and you're helping people figure out on their own how to solve that problem by showing how you can solve the problem for them. And when you package all that together... I think it, there's almost no way to say no if everything is right, you know, if, if it's a good fit. Yeah, I think uh, there was a great example of that a couple of days ago. I happened to be sitting in on a presentation about estate planning. And I went to law school and wills and trusts is an interesting topic, but it's not necessarily everyone's favorite to hear about because we don't typically like to contemplate our own deaths. Uh, not like a super popular cocktail party, like, hey, when you die, what's going to happen? Um, and so this person who was an attorney was presenting on the topic. And so a lot of it was kind of rushing back from law school, like, oh, that is the rule for that, or that is how that special trust mechanic works. But the most effective part of her presentation was the stories. And the stories uh, not only were apt, they were good examples of what she was describing, but they were also personal. And, and that, that's a huge thing. And that's what we see that's the most popular stuff on the internet today is the stuff where people can feel like, oh, this person's being very real, or I can somehow live vicariously through them a little bit. I'm never going to be a rock star, but I can follow them on Instagram and feel like I'm living that journey with them. Uh, so she was describing, yeah, you know, you want this, uh, you know, power of attorney, or you want this living will, you want this stuff that defines your medical care. And she said, you know, for example, a few years ago, I fell off a horse right? And had multiple broken ribs and a collapsed lung and so forth. And it was like, oh, wow, that got really real. It wasn't just like, hey, when you have a chance, 
try to get this paperwork done because you never know what might happen. And we're all like, yeah, hopefully not. Hopefully we'll just stay well forever. Uh, but she was saying this stuff does happen. You know, you, you can be doing the activity you love, like for me, cycling, for her riding a horse and things can change in an instant. And when you get taken into a hospital, you want to define what's going to happen. And so through that story, it made it very real to the point that I'm telling, I'm retelling the story now. Uh, and I was also feverishly taking notes like, hey, I have these documents, but let's make sure I know where they are and that the right people have them and so forth because it's important. Yeah. Um, another part of your company's success seems to come from sales systems that you've created to guide that process. Can you explain that, like how you implement systems within your company? Because I imagine, and I'm asking because what I envision is, okay, you can train this guy or this girl to do the sales thing. And it's kind of like, uh, back to my other guest too, Matthew, is like, you know, you can teach somebody how to develop their stories and stuff, and that's great. But you don't want to have to go through and individually teach every single person. And when you get new hires on, do the same, you know, super thorough onboarding, whereas every time where you have systems, it makes it easier for each first person to follow those systems and kind of get on board quickly and then run through the same process time and time again if it's successful or refine it if it's not. Yeah, I mean, I think there's the, the core building blocks as far as this is what we do and this is how we do it here. So, you know, typically we engage with a customer at this stage, they're, they're coming into the website, they're starting a trial or they're requesting a demonstration. Uh, next, we typically do these things, right? So it's kind of a pick a path story, which I used to love reading as a kid. You know, you decide what happens next right, and then the there's kind of all, adventures. yeah, <laughs> the alternative future stuff. And so, so there's that. And like you say, that's the pretty easy part to follow along and it doesn't take too long, right? A few days or a week to sort of, okay, I get it. I get the path. Uh, I get the customer journey. The interesting part then becomes really the internal stories as far as, okay, what are examples of how each of these steps works and where are the, where are the pitfalls and where are the things that can help take our sales process to the next level? An example of that and, and a mistake that I made years ago was a customer called in and said, do you do X, Y, Z, something that they wanted the application to do? And they described it in a very specific way and they used terms of art. And so I thought a sophisticated customer they're asking, you know, do we do it and do we do it in a very specific way? And I said that we don't, right? We don't do it that way. No, we, we don't have that offering. So, okay, thank you. You know, we're going to keep looking around. Of course, meanwhile, I was explaining the advantages of all the other things that we did and how we could be of service. Uh, so they chose another uh, technology to use. And then I came to find out they had simply misstated the term of art that we did actually do what they wanted. And we had done it since the beginning. And so... I was kicking myself because it was a big opportunity. And so that led kind of to the internal guidance of if a customer asks, if we do something, then generally we lead with the answer, yes. And then ask for clarification. It's a classic uh, improv technique where someone says something crazy to you on stage and you never look at them weird. Like what, you know, where am I gonna go? What do I do with that? Uh, instead, you always say, yes. And, and then after the and, you can pivot it anywhere you want. You can bring it back to where you were before. You can extend it further to where they were going. Or you can take it some third direction entirely. And that's been important for us because sometimes it is just lost in translation. We're describing things a certain way. A customer describes it in the way that they feel is right. And it turns out we're talking about the same thing. Or it turns out we're talking about something different, but there's a middle ground uh, and we can still serve them. So now the guidance internally is yes and 
can you describe a little bit more exactly how you want the data to flow? And then when they describe it, we can say, yep, that's what we do. Or we can say, that's interesting. We don't do it quite that way, but let us show you how we do it and let's figure out if it will work for you or not. And if it doesn't, then you know they can walk and figure out the best thing for them or we can build it and it will be ready for them in a matter of months. Um, but that way we haven't accidentally said no to something that we actually do. Um, so it's things like that where it's like, is that, is that really part of a sales process? Um, not originally by definition, but it's become part of the process so that everybody knows to say, yeah, and let's get more detail before we say no. Yeah, I like that. That's a great strategy. So as far as the process itself goes, how do you guys build that internally? Is it a, a database of if this, then that, or here's some of the frequently asked questions? Um, you know, like how do you, how do you build it? How do you update it? How do you keep people in tune with it? Yeah, for us, certainly, you know, we've built out a ton of workflow, uh, as, as you might imagine in Salesforce, our entire business is built on it. Uh, and then certainly we use our own application a lot for reasons that we can test it and continue to improve it, but also because it does save us a lot of time. So the classic gap is that salespeople will tend to follow that process because it's like, well, if this works, then that's what I'm going to do. But you don't necessarily have the data to back up that that's what happened. So, uh, for example, frequently on a call, I will ask a large enterprise client, great, just as a baseline, let's start with how many meetings did your sales team have with prospective customers last month? Um, and interestingly, hardly anyone can answer that question. That's a mystery for the vast majority of companies in the world. Because it's like, well, I don't know. I mean, we have a thousand salespeople. They each have an Outlook or a Google Calendar. What am I supposed to look through all those calendars and figure out which ones were prospect meetings and then tally them all up? Like, that would take forever. And also there's data privacy, all sorts of weird stuff. But meanwhile, if you sync that data into Salesforce, it's a really easy report to run. And that's something that our application does. So the key for us is getting the data flowing into a structured format, a database, a CRM, so that we can report on it and so that we can trigger workflows. Uh, so everything for us falls into a very specific uh, pipeline where we can say, okay, what stage of the deal are we in? What stage do we think we're in? And how do we get it to that next stage? And then for us, one of the important uh, learnings as we went up market to serve more mid-market and enterprise customers was uh, how can we help to project manage uh, these deals? So a lot of our smaller deals are very e-commerce like, let's try the application. We like it. It works. Here's the credit card on the website. Done. And we auto-provision licenses. And it's a wrap. Uh, for the larger enterprise clients, however, there's going to be more people involved. There's the, the business buyer. And then there's going to be a security review and a legal review and procurement. And so for us internally, how do we project manage that process? Because it can go for a year, year and a half. How do we try to condense that down to six, nine months? And how do we do things uh, in parallel? And that's been one of the big things for us. We used to even in our pipeline have, okay, great. We completed security review. Now let's advance to the next stage in the opportunity called uh, legal. Now what we try to do is say, uh, just at the outset, you're a big company in a regulated industry. We work with lots of companies like you. We know you're going to need to do a security review because frequently the business buyer doesn't realize that. They don't realize that before they buy software, they're going to have to review it. But we say, we know you're going to have to review it because you're in healthcare or you're in finance or you're in the government. So we'll send them all of our security documentation. Hey, bring the right people to the next phone call. Let's review all this. So that helps to start that process. And meanwhile, we'll send them our legal documentation and say, here's a starting point. If you wouldn't mind sending this over to legal counsel, they can start on it because they might be backed up and it could take three, four, six weeks. Uh, to get this going. And so the goal on our side is not to have these 
distinct pipeline uh, segments where we're going stage to stage uh, that's only hamstringing us and our ability to close the deal faster. Instead, it's kind of let's advance to security slash legal slash contracting slash procurement all at the same time so that hopefully six, eight weeks down the road, all of them are finishing uh, simultaneously. Well, I think that's brilliant because it immediately gets them invested in the process, which again, ties them more closely to you. And it shows that you guys know what you're doing because you've done it before. So yeah, it's brilliant. That's part of the key is, is so that it gets them comfortable because if they know they're going to have to do all that stuff, it's like, oh, cool. These folks basically know how to dance. They know how to do the dance with us. Uh, if it's the first time for them, they're new to their company, uh, they're new to enterprise, let's say, and we're basically saying, hey, here are the four things that are going to get us across the line. Then we've been helpful. We've helped to guide them in the right direction and help them get what they want, which is technology to help them do their job. Uh, so to your point, either way, we, we come out looking like we're a good partner. Yeah. So as far as the um, process itself, is there like if somebody were thinking, okay, yeah, this is great. I need to create a sales process so I can train my sales staff. Are there like templated guidelines or like, you know, they're like top three, four five things anybody should include in a basic sales process template from which then they customize to fit their industry. You mean there's a great classic methodologies. So, you know, the Miller Hyman's, the Sandler's, the spin selling, et cetera, of the world. Um, you know, my favorite books of recent past on on sales, which are a lot of people's favorite books, are uh, Challenger Sale and Challenger Customer as far as how to go about doing it um, in the market. And some of these provide a lot of great guidance as far as where you are in a process. I think, though, it is it can be very business specific and certainly industry specific. So, you know, the example I gave before is and we've pitched to companies that do this. They're literally selling fighter jets. And that process of selling is, is very, very different than the process that we use to sell our software because their, their sales cycle can be 15, 20 years, right? And they're pitching to the Pentagon and the budgets are in the billions, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars. And so it's different. The relationship building is the same. So most of their salespeople are like, you know, colonel, major and above in the military. Um, so it's interesting. They're not necessarily classically trained, quote unquote, salespeople, but they have really deep industry experience and domain expertise that they're able to bring to bear. So their process is going to look a little bit different. Uh, and a lot of it's classified anyway, so they're not necessarily going to share the process. Um, but it's different than ours. That said, the core building blocks of like, hey, you need to reach out and connect with somebody first. Otherwise, you're just sending out messaging all the time. Um, you know, that's more on the marketing side of the house, not sales. And those two need to dovetail. So there's the, the original connection and there's finding a way to have a meaningful meeting. Uh, unless it's 100% just e-commerce, which you see more in a, a B2C situation where it's, I'm just going to tell the person about our shoes. And if they want the shoes, they can buy the shoes. Um, for most of us in B2B, there's got to be a meaningful conversation prior to the purchase. Because uh, we've, we've got to be able to say, this is going to work for you. We understand your business. We'll let you try it first um, and, and go through a trial process and then buy it at the end. So, yeah, thankfully, between those books and also, honestly, if you're online and just go to the boards of some of the best, you know, sales groups, sales consultants, and they've got, you know, nice kind of clean sheets of this is where to start. You know, if you're just starting to build a sales development team, 
this is how to do it, right? Here's the predictable revenue model. And then you can say, that's not going to work for our industry, or our business, because it doesn't work for everybody. Then, okay, here's this other model that might work for you. Uh, and and uh, to give one example, you know, we're an inside sales model. We've always sold inside. Uh, what we've noticed over the past couple of years is we have increasing success when we're getting out of the office. Lots of conferences, lots of in-person meetings with prospects and customers. So the more that we do that, the more we're starting to think in our minds, would it be advantageous to have an outside uh, sales force, a field team? Uh, you know, if we're going to fill in the blank city, Chicago, a lot to do sales, would it make sense to have somebody sit in Chicago uh, and develop those relationships and attend all the happy hours, et cetera? Uh, so that may be kind of the next phase for us. So I don't know, it, it, consistently paying attention to where the best deals are coming from and then trying to adapt the process to that. Nice. Cool. All right. I've got a couple of questions I'd like to ask everybody. And so this one will kind of go back to how you guys built the company. Are there one or two things that keep you up at night from an operational or management standpoint? Uh, I think all the early entrepreneurs I remember going to hear talk always said the same thing. And and it's something that resonates with me because I remember several years ago that it was it was payroll. Right. So early in, in the in the business, from a cash flow standpoint, we're sort of a lightly funded angel backed uh, company, but originally very bootstrapped. It was just, hey, we need to make sure that cash flow kind of smooths out month to month so that we can predictably meet payroll. And for many months in the early days of the company, we were really close to that line. And that was exciting enough that it could keep you up at night because it's like, oh, we need this sale to come through, not just because it'd be a good thing, uh, but because it will help literally keep the lights on and keep people paid. Um, so that was a big thing. I think certainly, and in, in, in we talked about it a bit earlier, just the competitive landscape. I think historically we spent a lot more time uh, getting worried about what competitors were doing, how much money they'd raised, what they were going to do in the market next, what features they were developing, how we were competing with them. Um, we stopped doing that as much because we figured out we were just burning a lot of cycles, uh, kind of fretting uh, and trying to adapt to what other people were doing. And we were much better served focusing on what the customer wanted and just delivering that because um, they weren't worried about the competitive landscape. They just wanted something that worked for them. Um, so we've ended up spending less time on that. That said, paying attention to the larger market, which is to say, what are the big players doing in the market and how, how is tech going to change overall in the sales space is something that I spend quite a bit of time on. So I wouldn't necessarily say it keeps me up at night in a worried way, but it keeps me up at night because I think it's so vitally important. It's existentially important uh, to our business and our industry. So I spend a lot of time on it. Yeah. Well, there's, there's two things I want to add to that. The first is about you know paying attention to yourself versus the competition. Because I, I wish I could remember where, but I was just reading about that same thing or listening to somebody, and they said the same thing. It's right, like you could waste all your energy worrying about what the competition is doing and how you're going to react to that, or you could just spend your time and energy focusing on making your product or your service, whatever, your business the best as possible, which in your case means producing the best solution for your customers to integrate Salesforce. Um, yeah, it's like, and I've struggled with that with Bike Room. I'm looking around at these other websites that are doing things differently or whatever. Maybe they get a nice bump in traffic over a certain type of article they're doing. And I'm like, oh, we need to be doing that. And I'm like, no, but that's not what we do, right? Like, pull back, just focus on doing what we do as good as possible. And every time it ends up being the right decision. Yeah, it's, it's just, hard. It's hard sometimes to see, especially if you feel like someone's done something really new and innovative. So it's like, oh, we, you know, we launched this many years ago and then this new company came along and they didn't have to make any of the old mistakes and they just went, you know, straight from zero to hero. 
and their tech looks slick, their website looks nice, they're making some sales, but they're still going to have to learn a lot of the hard stuff. And there's, there's, I haven't seen a lot of ways around that. Sometimes a company can come in fresh and just kind of eat everybody's lunch, but more often than not, there's still a lot of hard lessons to be learned. And now that we've seen that movie play out several times in our space and in other, you know, competitive landscapes, you know, we've worried less about, oh, there's, you know, there's a new peacock and, you know, really colorful over there. And we're like, cool, but they're still going to have to learn some stuff. And meanwhile, we're going to keep advancing, doing what we do. Because, yeah, to your point, I think it's really hard to play the game and simultaneously commentate it. Um, you know, that's why there's commentators and that's why there's the players and the coaches and so forth. So sort of knowing our role is, you know, we're, we're in the game. We need to keep playing. We don't have the luxury yet of, of stepping back and kind of commentating about it. Yeah. And then I want to talk about the payroll and the, the smoothing the cash flow, because I think that's something probably a lot of young companies struggle with. So one of the things we've done with uh, bike rumors, let's say, you know, say advertiser brand A signs up for a campaign that's going to run intermittently across a six month span. So maybe one month they're running a bunch of banners. Next month, it's a sponsored tech piece or something, whatever it is. It's, it's not just banners consistently for those six months. Well, I simply take whatever the total is for that campaign. I just say, look, we're just going to invoice you every month for one sixth of that amount. Makes it easy for you guys, makes it easy for us, which has two benefits for me. A, it's a heck of a lot simpler than trying to figure out different billing every month. And B, it gives me predictable income. So I'm curious what some of your solutions were early on to help smooth the cash flow so that you could predictably make payroll. Yeah, for us, certainly uh, billing in advance. Uh, has always been important and especially early on. So, you know, people would buy annually. The vast, vast majority of our customers are on annual payment and it's, it's pay in advance. Um, and so most of those early customers were also through e-commerce. And so being able to collect that money and put it to work and then serve them over the course of the next year was super important. Now, now you can account for that, right? According to Gap, you're delivering the service over 12 months. So you split it in 12 parts and you allocate it and that's how you calculate your MRR. But from a running of the business standpoint and keeping the lights on, uh, it's helpful to collect that money early so that you can put it to work and, and grow the business. So, yeah, the timing of cash flow is really important. I think early on, what we found was that one day or one week or one month, we felt like, man, we're really on to something. People are really liking this. They're finding out about it and they're coming in, they're buying it. And then the next day or the next week or the next month, man, things really slowed down. Was, is that it? Were those all the customers? Uh, do we need to do something totally different? Uh, how do we get back to what ha whatever happened last week? And we didn't know what had happened. It was very hard to attribute how people found it because so much of it then and increasingly now is, is word of mouth. So we would look at what we were doing from a marketing standpoint and be like, man, we just can't put our finger on it. It's kind of the classic line, 50% of marketing works. We're just not sure which half. And so then it was just a question of, okay, well, well let's just keep working, right? Keep hustling. And then over time, so let's say you have you know, high January, lower February, high March, lower April, et cetera. But then as you build steam, the flywheel gets going, then that kind of eventually smooths itself out. There's still a little bit of cyclicality um, in our business, and we see it with other SaaS companies. So we don't think it's just us. We think it's uh, folks that are in sales enablement and then sales software. Um, but what we've tried to do is, is make it, and, and, and now, it's, it's, it's clearer from a cash flow perspective now than it was before, 
But before, the concern was, well, we could hire someone based on a great February. We just didn't know what March was going to be like because we had never sold in a March before. So there was no prior data. So it was very hard to create models. Once we had been in for a year and then a second year, it, it was increasingly easy. But it helped a lot to have those early angel backers because it gave us a little bit of foundation right in the bank where we could say, look, we're going to hire you. Cash flow is really strong, but also we have enough money where we're going to be able to keep paying you for the foreseeable future. And that was a good message to be able to send to the employees, but also a nice one for us to keep in mind because we worried last about you know, kind of making someone a promise like we want you to join our team and then not being able to deliver on it. Yeah, for people who maybe don't want to go get angel investment or capital or outside investors in any way, uh, what did you guys do to kind of convince customers, particularly bigger customers, to pay for a full year in advance, especially when you were younger and not quite as proven of a company? Yeah, I mean, I think it helped that that there's a model that we could point to, which at the time, I would say the majority of Salesforce contracts were annual paid in advance. Uh, now it's almost all of them are. Uh, so they, they really changed from even, even enabling companies to go quarterly and so forth. There's still some exceptions, but the vast, vast majority are paying annually in advance. So it was nice to just be able to point to like, well, that, that's, the, that's the major platform and we help you get a tremendous amount of value out of the platform and we do billing the same way. And people say, oh, okay, cool, that makes sense. Um, so piggybacking on an established standard has been helpful for us versus if we had come in to a market where everything was monthly and we were like, we're going to be annual. And everyone said, that's not, that's not how we do things here. Uh, we want things to align with all of our other monthlies. Then that would have been much, much harder, I think. Yeah, I like that advice. Kind of like go with what is the expected norm for some things. Um, yeah, it's, you don't have to sell it, right? It's not like it's something new that you then have to explain. It just makes everybody's lives easier. So, I, my last question is always, you know, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs who want to do something similar? I think in this case, what might be a nice wrap up is uh, probably going to be a little bit repetitive for some of the things you said. But if somebody wants to build out that first sales procedure that's first script you know that that thought process what's one or two pieces of advice you'd give them when they're starting with a clean sheet of paper yeah with a clean sheet i think probably my best advice because this is what we did and it seemed to work to help us get out of the gate which we we see a lot of people with great ideas great products but they don't quite get them to market is sell first um which is to say that's what I focused on because I'm, I'm not an engineer. I'm not an architect. So Ryan was doing that and we were doing them in parallel, which I think was extremely helpful. Um, but if, if you have to choose or if you have the luxury of selling also, try to sell in advance of the product even being ready, which isn't to say you have to collect the money on day zero. It's great if you can, but get in front of customers, make the full pitch. And get them to say, yes, I, I, I do want that. Yes, I will enter into a contingent agreement. I will buy it assuming it's ready by a certain date or assuming it has this feature in it. That's great. Now you've got their buy-in. You've got kind of the, the beginning uh, of a partnership with them. And I, I think for a lot of that, I've looked at the example of my uncle, who's an inventor. And he's had a lot of success going out early with inventions, right? So he'll hold the patent on it. And he's getting ready to take it to market and he'll go to the main players in a given industry and say, uh, you know, one way he's been successful is by saying, um, hey, one player in this competitive industry is going to get access to this technology early. They're going to get it six months before everyone else gets it. Uh, who, who would like it? You know, who, who wants that six month lead? And then it becomes an auction. 
right? Who, who wants to get that six-month lead? What are they willing to pay for it? And that's an advanced contract. And it's non-dilutive. It's not an equity investment. And it's not debt. It's sales. Uh, cash in the door that can be used to develop a product, hire a sales team, do product development, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so getting out early and trying to do sales versus staying in the lab for, I would argue, too long, right? Trying to perfect the product, which is totally unproven. You don't have enough data from the real marketplace to know if it's going to work or not, or if you've missed the mark or hit it right on, um, I think can work. And we've all seen companies sort of like unveil the secret and have it work tremendously well. And those stories become pretty famous and apocryphal. The problem is I think they're pretty unique. I think for most of us, the rest of us, the mortals, uh, it's more helpful to go out and get a tremendous amount of overwhelming feedback that helps to hone the product and then get it out uh, versus surprise the market. The market uh, sometimes will reply very favorably to a surprise, which just hits just right. But more often, I think the market doesn't view surprises favorably. They like predictability. They like, well, the market demanded this and now we delivered it. So market is happy versus market surprise. Market doesn't know what to do. And the potential is you could release to zero fanfare or no one would pick it up. And then that's hard to look back on, you know, two, three years of product development. That was kind of a false start. Yeah. Well, it'd be like going from the horse and buggy to a Tesla, right? Like it's just, it's too much, too big of a jump. And you know, it's, it's kind of like you look at it in the bike industry, you're a cyclist, you understand this, you know, bikes evolve iteratively. And for some reasons, I think it's because that's, you know, people are thinking too small as terms of what can be done. But then the other side of it is like, if you went straight from a uh, hardtail 26 inch mountain bike to a long travel 29 or downhill bike, people would be like, no, you know, but right. <laughs> we have now gotten to that point, but it's taking like what, 30 years. And every time, of course you get the people saying, Oh, they're just making this little change and it'll be outdated next year. But psychologically it helps people progress more naturally to something new. So yeah, I like that advice. Yeah, it was interesting. I took my bike in the shop, uh, shoot just a couple weeks ago. And uh, I was like, hey, you know, do you have a part? I need to make a replacement. I, I've broken something on the bike. And they were like, well, we actually don't. No one's making this anymore. <laughs> you know, you're, you're running components that are 20 years old. And they said, you know, you want to upgrade to the new stuff? And I was like, sure, let's do that just so that if I break stuff again, I can replace it on the road. And, uh, but it was interesting just because it's like, well, it's worked fine for 20 years, right? It's like an airplane. If you take care of it, it'll keep running. But then eventually one of the parts broke. And so I had a good replacement. They're like, yeah, no one makes this stuff anymore. <laughs> so I was like, huh, okay. The, the industry moved on. I just wasn't paying attention. Yeah, you should just let me know what you need. I've got boxes and boxes of old parts just sitting around here. So. Nice. I will do that. I'll take you up on that. Cool, man. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for your time. This was great. I mean, I learned a lot that I'm going to start putting into practice for our sales process. And, man, be safe out riding. Yeah, I appreciate it. Likewise, always good to talk to a fellow cyclist. We'll have to go do a ride one of these days. Definitely. Brandon's strategy of educating potential customers on what they'll need to do in order to use a product like his is brilliant. He's not making a hard sell on his product, just sharing information to help a potential customer understand what's involved and how to best use it. He gets them to start doing some of the groundwork before the sale, which gets them invested in the process. It's almost like a free trial. The other key takeaway for me was how they've trained their team to say yes and then get the customer to clarify what their needs are. 
If they ask for something that's not exactly what you do and you say no, that sale is gone forever. But yes and buys precious time and keeps the conversation going until you can find the right solution for them. Which means you have to be flexible and you have to empower your sales team to think on their feet. If you're only providing a sales script, this won't work. That's why you need a sales process that's adaptable to changing needs. The side benefit is that you learn what features people are really looking for so you can build the products they want. And ultimately, that's how you succeed, by giving the people what they want, even if you have to show them why they want it. I've put links to the books and other things Brandon suggested in the show notes at thebuildcycle.com slash podcast. Click on any episode to find further analysis, timestamps, images, and links so you can connect with the people I've interviewed. If you like this episode, could you hit that share button and send it to just one person you think might enjoy it? That's the fastest, easiest way to help me grow this and keep getting amazing guests for you. Here's hoping your process is turning up surprising benefits for your company. Until next time, keep building.